You are listening to a message from Victory Alabang. Get the latest updates by visiting victoryalabang.org or like us on facebook.com slash victoryalabang. We are starting a brand new series entitled Beyond the Signs. And uh, this is actually a story or a, a series on the miracles of Christ based on the book of John. John is known to be the, the apostle of love. And, uh, you know, he was, you know, kind of like that. You know, the, the, the artist is portraying that he's close to the Lord. If there's anyone among the apostles who's really uh, the, part of the inner circle, this is John. There, you know, there are 12 apostles that Jesus had, and there were three that are closest to him, Peter, James, and John. Uh, James and John uh, were brothers, and uh, they were uh, sons of Zebedee. Uh, they were the, another name for them is the sons of thunder. In, in fact, his, their dad is probably known to have a big voice. Uh, he's called Thunder, and James and John were his sons, and John happens to be one of the closest, and he is known to be the apostle that Jesus loved. And it's interesting that if you look at the Gospels, how many Gospels do we have in the New Testament? There are four Gospels. Okay, The first four books in your New Testament, they are known as the Gospels. Gospel means good news. And they are the ones who basically delivered the good news about the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ, His incarnation, until the resurrection and post-resurrection, which is the ascension. And it's interesting to note that in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, these are known as the synoptic Gospels. Everybody say synoptic. Synoptic just simply means same optic. They're the same style in writing. Uh, they focused mostly on the miracles and the power of Jesus. And many, they, they actually just highlighted a lot of different miracles of Christ. But John is a little bit different. His style of writing is different because he did not just write the other miracles. In fact, he just focused on seven miracles. And these miracles, I believe that he deliberately just chose them. And his purpose is to be able to reveal to us that who Jesus was in a very special way. And so one of the key verses that you will find in the book of John is actually found towards the end of the book. Just to summarize the purpose of this book. In John chapter 20, verse 30 to 31, this is not yet the text, okay? We're going to be reading the text this morning. I'm just giving you a broad stroke, an overview of what the book of John is offering to us, its modern day readers. And so in uh, chapter 20 of verse 30 and 31, it says, Now Jesus did many other signs, everybody say signs, in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book, but these are written. What are these? These seven signs that he was writing about. And what he said was, I am not here to write all the miracles of Christ. I just picked and choose and chose seven significant signs that I want to highlight the character and the attribute of Christ. And he said this in verse 31, but these are written so that you may what? You may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by what? Believing, you may have life in His name. So this word believe is actually found about 98 times in the whole book of John. The emphasis of this book is really for us to become believers. In fact, one of my 
memory verses that I actually had, you know, when I was still a young Christian is John chapter 1 verse 12. To those who be- receive Him, to those who believe in His name, He gave the rights to become children of God. Children not born of natural descent nor of a husband's will, but born of God. So we're called to be believers in Christ. How many of you are believers? Please raise your hand if you are a believer. We're believers in His name. We're believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the emphasis of John is for us to believe. You know, one thing that is notable about John's writing is he never used the word, the word miracle. Never will you find in his writing the word miracle. Matthew, Mark, and Luke actually use the word miracles to emphasize on the power of Jesus. But, you know, somehow John specifically used sign. He referred to miracles as signs. Everybody say signs. Signs are meant to point to something or to someone. Signs are made for a specific purpose. How many of you have seen signs all over uh, Metro Manila in, or, or for, for example, in South Supra or S-Lex, okay? You know, signs are everywhere. Signs are directional tools pointing to a destination or pointing to someone. You know, these are objects or quality or event that, you know, whose presence or occurrence indicate the probable presence of something else. So when you see a sign, it's not yet the real thing. Do you get that? So when you see the sign towards Batangas, you're not yet there. For example, if you see a sign for Baguio and it says there Baguio and then the arrow, you know, pointing down, you know, does that does that mean that you're already in Baguio? No, you're just going there. You're on your way to Baguio. But what if? You and your family are on your way to Baguio and you're, you know, you're just so excited about, you know, wow, this is Baguio. And what you did was you stopped already and you pitched a tent and you started, you know, just unpacking already. Wow, I feel cold already. You know, we're enjoying the climate of Baguio. How many of you know that that is kind of like crazy? Because you're not yet there and you're stopping and you're parking already there as if it's the real thing. Many people stop at the signs and the miracles that we see on a daily basis. You know, John is actually just saying that we don't follow signs. We follow the one that the sign is pointing to. Isn't it? You know, we are actually just so enamored with miracles and signs and wonders and the move of God. And definitely, if you see like a conference, you know, having all this, you know, the, the blowing and glowing and all the different kinds of conferences, you know, it's a miracle conference. That's great. We see the power of God in the conference, but I hope that we will not stop at just pursuing miracles and signs and wonders because signs and wonders are meant to point to someone. And John took the time to use this word sign so that it can be clear that this is yet not it. There's something beyond the sign. And that is our title for the series, Beyond the Sign. Go beyond the sign. Go beyond what you see there. And how many of you have experienced the miracle of God in your life? Please raise your hand. You know, I believe that all of us have received a miracle from God. The fact that you are in church today, that's a miracle. Look at the person beside you. Praise God that you are a product of God's miracle. The fact that we are Christians, the fact that you and I are saved, that is a miracle of God. 
God is the only one who can change us from the inside out. Another way to look at signs is signs are meant to inform people about something in that place. You know, you know for example, if you're looking for a bathroom, what do you look for? Signs, right? So like yesterday in monochrome, I was looking for the sign for the bathroom and I was looking for the image of a boy and a girl and they didn't use the image of a boy and a girl. They just used letters. They used M and W. So you figure it out, okay? Of course, if you're speaking in English, it's easy, men and women. But if you're Tagalog speaking, uh, mama and... So you, you, know, you figure it out. You know, it's, it's just a letter and you don't know, okay, where do I go, okay? And so, you know... Signs are meant to inform people of about something about. For example, I saw some of these signs that are, if door does not open, do not enter. Hello, <laughs> of course, right? Another sign that I saw is notice public bar. Our public bar is presently not open because it is closed <laughs> by the manager. Okay, that's very profound. Okay, what about this sign? Holy house of drugs. Okay, I think this is actually a drugstore, okay? Not, you know, not jutes, okay? Not, <laughs> you know, you know, this is not where you buy shabu or, you know, this is like a regular mercury drug, okay? Uh, that's the sign. What about this sign? Government warning, do not throw your cigarette ends on the floor. The cockroaches are getting cancer. <laughs> Signs, they, they, they inform us. Okay? Or what about this sign? You see that this uh, in one church abroad. Please do not leave your personal belongings unattended. Someone might think it's the answer to their prayers. <laughs> so hang on to your bags, okay? Because some are praying for, for, for provision today, okay? Or what about this sign? Go slow, accident porn area, okay? I think this it should be accident prone area. But anyway, so signs are meant to inform us. Signs are meant to point us to a specific direction. And, you know, we don't stop at signs, per se, or we don't stop at the miracles of Christ because I believe when the Apostle John was writing this book, he picked and chose the seven signs or the seven miracles that would highlight who Jesus was. And it was a time when there was a teaching called Gnosticism that was actually arising in the first century, Gnostic or Gnosticism simply means special knowledge. Gnosis means knowledge. And the belief is that there's a certain knowledge that this group has, and what they believe is that matter is intrinsically evil. And so they're attacking Jesus, and what they're saying is Jesus is not God because if He is flesh and blood, then He definitely is not deity. But John spoke about this, and that's the reason why he introduced this book in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. And then you see verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and He made His dwelling among us. And so he was establishing the truth that yes, this God that we believe has been existing from the very start. If you look at the Bible, 
And if you go to Genesis chapter 1, verse 1, it is so similar the way it was written. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John specifically used the word in the beginning to establish that this Jesus that we are worshiping, this Jesus in the flesh, this Jesus that you and I saw with our very own eyes, this Jesus that I have touched with my own hands, is the same God who was there existing from the very start, the one who created the heavens and the earth. And is now walking among us. How many of you know that that is an awesome truth? Come on now. You know, that's why this, I believe this series is just so rich. I'm just so excited about this because one of my favorite books really is, aside from the book of Psalm, is the book of John. You know, and I, my encouragement for us as we journey through this series is that you and I will become students of the Word. I encourage you to read the book of John over and over and over. In fact, memorize you know, some of the verses that are there. Shirley was sharing uh, like a, a book to my girls lately. And she was encouraging them to memorize verses. Uh, this book uh, entitled 100 Verses to Memorize in Your Whole Life. And they're like key verses that we can memorize. And what this book was saying is there are actually the fantastic four verses that you can actually memorize. If you memorize this fantastic four, you've actually have, you actually have the Bible at the palm of your hand. Are you interested to find out what these four verses are? What this book was saying is the four verses and which my girls have actually memorized already is one number one is Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Ten words, one verse. That's key because it establishes where you and I came from and who created us and we did not come from monkeys. Come on now. We were created in His image and likeness. He was the one who created everything that we see here physically. He was the one who created even what we don't see physically. The heavens, the earth, the supernatural. He was the one who established that. Another verse to memorize is, actually the three remaining verses are all from the book of John. John chapter 1 verse 1, what I spoke earlier. John chapter 1 verse 14, what I spoke earlier. And the last verse, guess what? John 3.16. How many of you think you can memorize those four verses? When you memorize those four, you've got the Bible at the palm of your hands. It gives you a glimpse of the Bible from beginning to end. And what's the purpose why we are re uh, reading this book? I want us all to journey and start reading the book of John in the next seven weeks. Okay, So uh, as we are going through this, we are going to be looking at uh, the seven miracles. And today, we're going to be looking at the first miracle. And what is that first miracle of Jesus? That's turning water into wine, okay? The wedding at Canaan. So if you have your Bibles, please open to the book of John. Of course, chapter 2, uh, 1 to 11. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee. And the mother of Jesus was there. And Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jar with water, and they filled them up to the brim. 
And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, the master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. Everybody see that statement. But you have kept the good wine until now. This is the first of his what? Signs Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. Father, we thank you so much for the preaching of your word. We ask that you would anoint everything that will come out from this pulpit. I dare not say, God, that I know everything about this, but I thank you, Holy Spirit, for being the one to guide us as we dig in the truth of your word. Change us from the inside out. I thank you, Lord God, for this first sign that Jesus performed in a simple wedding in a small town called Cana. We thank you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. So now we focus on the first miracle, water to wine. It's interesting that this passage or this miracle started off uh, you know, by, by describing that the miracle of Christ happened in a, in a small town called Cana. And if you're wondering where Cana is, Cana is actually uh, in uh, the Galilee portion of Israel. If you look at the map of Israel, you see the upper portion to be Galilee and Capernaum. This is where Jesus uh, was born. And the early part of his ministry uh, was actually spent there. And towards the end of his life, he went down to Jerusalem. And you know that's actually uh, southward. And that's where he went on his way to the cross. And so Cana was a small town near Nazareth. In fact, where is Cana presently located? Nobody really knows exactly uh, where it is. But somehow through diggings and through archaeological finds, they think that they found something. Uh, this is because Cana was not really a very significant place. Cana was a small town. It was not really that known, you know, kind of like Jerusalem or uh, Samaria or Galilee or Bethlehem or even Nazareth. You know, it's, you know, if, if we say that, you know, we are in Alabama, how many of you know that that is a pretty prominent place? You know, where do you live? Okay, I live in Alabang Hills or I live in Ayala, Alabang or I live in BF Homes. You know, these are prominent places here in the South, okay? But, you know, if, if, Someone says, okay, for example, oh, where do you live? Uh, I live in Tunasan or something like that. Okay, uh, where is that? Okay, only the people from Muntinlupa probably know where Tunasan is. So it's it's kind of like that, you know. Kena is a very insignificant town, and what's interesting is that Jesus performed the first miracle in an insignificant town, in a small wedding, with unnamed. Bride and groom and unnamed guest, and it's kind of like a low-key event. So you know, I've divided my my sermon this morning into three parts. Okay, the first part is the wedding. Everybody say the wedding. The second part is a mother's request, and the sec the third part is the sign. What actually happened in that? So let's talk about wedding. How many of you love weddings? You know, I like going to weddings. I like doing weddings. Uh, Yesterday I was texting Pastor Saul. She just he just did a like a renewal of vows 
of one of our uh, you know, members, 10-year uh, uh, anniversary, and so they decided to renew their vows. But you know, when you talk about weddings, weddings are fun. Uh, you see the, the, the groom and the bride just loving each other. Uh, you know, they, they exchange their vows. Uh, the, you know, wedding is one of the most important highlights in a couple's life. In fact, one of the things that we say to the engaged couples when they're starting, don't focus too much on the, you know, on the reception, but focus on the marriage after. But yet, weddings are important because it's the celebration of your love together and that's where you exchange your vows and you make a promise and you don't just give your vows to one another, but you give your vows to God and before all the people that uh, are standing with you. But yet, this particular wedding in Cana is a bit different because, you know, Jewish weddings are different from Western weddings. Jewish weddings actually have about a week or two week, a two-week celebration. How many of you are ready for that? Uh, singles, okay? So you don't just have a reception for about two hours. You have a whole week of celebration. That's the Jewish wedding. They have actually two parts in their wedding. They have uh, the betrothal, which is the, you know, the signing of the contract. And the betrothal part, you're not yet married, but you're almost there. It's already, but not yet. Something like that. And it's kind of like this ceremony. And what you do is you sign a contract. And what you're doing is you're making a promise. For example, the bride, that I'm not going to be with any other man from here on. It's the promise already. Yet I am exclusively yours. And the wedding, the actual exchange of vows, is where they will have now a first contact together. So it's like two parts. And so a Jewish wedding is very elaborate, so to speak. Okay? And so what's interesting is the miracle did not happen in the ceremony. It happened in the reception. This is where we find the setting of the miracle. And if we go back to verse 1, it says, On the third day. I don't know why John wrote the third day and why he emphasized on the third day. Because, you know, he could have just said, Now, one day, right? You know, if you're an author and you don't want to, you know, just... Uh, if you just want to emphasize that wedding, then you can just say, Now, one day, Jesus and his disciples went to a wedding. But why did John you know, right on the third day. Now, there are many commentaries that actually say that on the third day, if you look at the book of creation, on the third day, this is where God actually spoke the word good twice. You know, if you look at the, the calendar that we have, what's the first day? First day is Sunday. Second day is Monday. The third day is what? Tuesday. You know, the, if you go to, to Israel, many of the weddings happen on Tuesday. I don't know, maybe because of tradition. And maybe, I don't know if John was emphasizing the fact that it was on the third day that Jesus was actually raised from the dead. So somehow we, you know, we, we can see here some clues on why this author, John, was writing third day. But, you know, that's not really the point of this story. But on the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Whose wedding was it? It was not mentioned. 
We don't know who is the bride and the groom. Obviously, there was a bride and a groom because there's a wedding. In fact, in the story that we've read, the bride was not even mentioned. The groom was mentioned, but he was not named. The master of ceremony was mentioned, but he was not named. The disciples were mentioned, but they were not named. In fact, if you read John chapter 1, we were suspecting that this is probably Philip, Peter, and Andrew, and Nathaniel, because these were the first disciples before this, the first miracle that happened. But they were not named. The servants were not named. Mary was there, but she was not even named. She was only referred to as what? The mother of Jesus. And there's only one person who was actually named in the wedding. And this is who? In other words, he is the focus and the highlight of this miracle. And this sign simply points to him. The wine was not even, not even mentioned. We don't know the brand of wine. The characters were unnamed except Jesus. And why choose a wedding for the first miracle? You know, I don't know, if I was God, which I am not, praise God, I would probably have chosen some significant event to reveal myself, you know, as the first act of my public ministry. I would have probably raised Lazarus from the dead or I, I'd probably stop the storm or I would go and feed the 5,000 right away. But Jesus started his public ministry in a very insignificant place and event, a small town wedding. I believe what Jesus wants us to know is that he wants to be involved in our everyday life. What he's saying is, your wedding, your marriage, your life, your children, your family, your business, it matters to Jesus. He, he's not after the, like, the big stuff, you know. I believe he's concerned about our mundane, ordinary, routine, commonplace, unexciting, humdrum, monotonous routine that we're doing every single day. And as long as Jesus is there, how many of you know that we are safe? We are safe. And Jesus is not a God who is far, far away. Yes, He is the infinite God, but He is also the intimate God. He wants to be involved in your circumstance. Yesterday, uh, we received a text, you know, the, the daughter of Lord June and Annette, are, he's, Gail is about to give birth. You know, she's almost there, but she's not yet there. So there's dilation already. And so we were saying, we're praying for this. And so God cares for that. God cares for the little things. God cares for whatever you're going through right now in your school, your final exams. God cares for your project in the office. God cares for, you know, tonight if you're going to be watching a movie, God cares about what movie you're going to be watching. God wants to be involved in our everyday thing. And this is what we see here in this story that God cares and God is concerned about us. Tell the person beside you, God cares for you. We see the importance of the wedding union in the sight of Jesus. Thus, He chose this as a venue for His first miracle. That He, yes, He is the one who created marriage. He is the initiator of marriage. 
And so we see that, you know, as, 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 a, as a one of importance in, in the life of, of the Lord. Tim Keller wrote in his book, Encounters with Jesus, just to talk about the culture of the Jews. In such a culture, even a simple invitation to their table, let alone to such a grand event as a wedding feast, was a big deal. It represented a formal invitation to friendship and intimacy with the inviting, celebrating family. This was because in ancient and traditional cultures, the purpose of a wedding was not primarily the happiness of two individuals, but instead to bind the community together and to raise the next generation. In other words, for the good of the commonwealth, not just for the good of the, the, the couple. And this meant that weddings and wedding feasts were a far bigger deal than they are today. Each wedding was a public feast for the entire town because marriage was about the whole community and not merely a couple. Now we move from the wedding to what happened. Why was Mary involved in this thing? Now we don't know if she was like the wedding coordinator for the wedding. We don't know. We don't know if she was a relative of the bride or the groom, but somehow she wanted to be involved. You know, I don't know if she was the typical tita of Manila that, you know, she just wants to be there and, you know, makikialam, you know, what, what can I do here? You know, I, I don't know if she's kind of like that. If you're a guest in the wedding, how many of you have actually been involved in making sure that the karikare is there? Or making sure that the dove is there, you know, that the cake. No, I couldn't, I couldn't care. If I was just a guest, I'll just sit down there, enjoy the ceremony, enjoy the two, and maybe have fellowship later. But to know the details of each, you know, uh, thing in the wedding, I don't care. But why is it that Mary somehow, he knew, she knew for a fact that the wine ran out. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. Wine was a regular part of the wedding feast. Not to get drunk, of course, but to celebrate the union with joy and gladness. Now, running out of wine in a wedding in Cana is like attending a wedding in Palayan City in Nueva Ecija, the rice capital of the Philippines, and the waiter will say, there's no more rice. How many of you can relate to that? No rice, that's a problem. There's a lot of food. There's still, you know, whatever. Menudo, there's still adobo, there's sinigang, kare-kare. How many of you have eaten all this without rice? That's a mortal sin, right? How can you eat kare-kare and sinigang without rice? Ah! Now, we Filipinos actually, are, maybe if you're a Chinese, there's no noodles. And for a Jewish feast, with no wine in the wedding, that's humiliating. It's a big deal for them. It's like, why did you invite us all the way and you're celebrating for one week and that you cannot even provide wine in this wedding? Have you ever had a run out of wine situation? Have you ever had a run out of budget situation or a run out of tuition fee emergency or run out of answer to your problem or run out of grace in your relationship or run out of patience with your whoever or run out of... How many of you can relate with me on this? We run out of things. Lord, isa na lang. 
Mary was presenting this to the Lord. Hey, they have no more wine. William Barclay, not the basketball player, commented, for a Jewish feast, wine was essential. Without wine, said the rabbis, there is no joy. It was not that the people were drunk. And I want to emphasize on this. They were not there to get drunk. Wine is actually a symbol of joy. But in the East, wine was essential. Drunkenness was in fact a great disgrace. And they actually drank their wine in a mixture composed of two parts of wine to three parts of water. So the wine then is very diluted compared to our wine today. The alcohol content of your, our wine today is so much different from the wine that the Jewish community is drinking because they don't have ways to filter their water, so they drink wine with water, so somehow it becomes purified in the process. And that's part of the wedding feast. At any time, the failure of provision would have been a problem for hospitality in the East. is a sacred duty, but for the provisions to fail at a wedding, would be a terrible humiliation for the bride and the groom. Now, I know what you're thinking. Since the first miracle of Christ is to turn water to wine, then let's go and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You know, in Ecclesiastes chapter 10, verse 19, it says, A feast is made for laughter, and wine makes what? Life merry. Yes, the purpose of wine is to celebrate and to provide joy, but as I explained in the context of the Jewish community, it's not to be taken for drunkenness. In fact, the same Bible wrote this, Romans 13, 13, let us behave decently as in the daytime, not in orgies or what? Or drunkenness, not in sexual immorality, in debauchery, not in dissension and jealousy. Paul listed all the sins and he put their drunkenness together with orgies. Are we hearing it this morning? Yes, the first miracle of Christ is to convert water into wine, but there was a purpose why he did this. And it's not for us to be taking this into the extreme. How many of you know that anything that is good, when you abuse it, it becomes bad? Food is good. But if you abuse it by eating too much, even if you don't feel like... You know, you, you see God early because you get a heart attack. <laughs> Ephesians chapter 5, verse 18, do not get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, what? Be filled with the Spirit. But this is not the focus of our sermon today. We can do this in another day. And Jesus said to her, woman, everybody say woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. Now, if you read this, it's kind of insulting. How many of you have a mom? How many of you have called your mother, Hoy Babae? You know, how many of you dare call your mom, Hoy Babae? My time has not yet come. Now, I want to clarify that this is in no way a disrespect on Jesus as, as he was addressing his mom. In fact, in the NIV, it says there, Dear woman. Dear woman. So NIV version has actually put a little bit more grace in the statement because the NIV writer is kind of looking at our culture today in the context compared to the culture back then. But I believe Jesus remained tender with Mary. 
And what Jesus is actually saying is, Mom, you have let go, you have to let me go. There's a shift in the relationship now between Jesus because he's about to go public. And what he is probably saying is, Mom, you've raised me, and you've raised me well as your son. But a time is about to come that I will go about what my father has called me to do. And so he is slowly transitioning his relationship from that of a mother to that of one who raised him up with tenderness and with, with honor and respect because he was about to go public. Now why did, I don't know, why did Mary go to him in the first place? They have no wine. Remember when the angel Gabriel appeared to Mary that you are with child and that child of yours is going to be the savior of the world. How many of you are, remember that story during Christmas, right? She's familiar about this. I don't know if she has seen this in the past when Jesus was like four years old, he turned water into Milo. I don't know if, you know, if that happened in their household. Well, I remember, you know, you turned water into Nido or something like that. And, and so maybe you can turn, you know, I don't know if that was a, or maybe not. But she was familiar that this boy, now a man, 30 years old, has a special purpose. And see, she was somehow setting him up as a mom. How many of you are like, you know, this kind of a mom? Stage mom? You know, I, I want to talk about this. My hour has not yet come. You know, what does this mean? When Jesus said, my hour has not yet come. You know, for many years I've been reading this particular verse and I thought he was referring to his hour of starting his public ministry or his hour of doing the first miracle. As I thought he was saying, don't pressure me because I, I'm not yet ready to do a miracle right now. What is this, my hour has not yet come? It was actually, you know, let's track this, because you see this statement of Jesus as we move along in the book of John. In John chapter 7, verse 6, Jesus said to them, My hour has not yet come, but your time is always here. He was talking to his brothers, and his brothers and his friends are saying they were in one of the feasts. You know, you know, make a miracle again. You know, you know, do another, you know, go and prove yourself. If you, want, if you are really the Messiah, show yourself. And he said this to them, My hour, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. In verse 30, So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because what? His hour had not yet come. In John chapter 8, verse 20, These words he spoke in the treasury, as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him, because what? His hour had not yet come. Now we see a, somehow a shift here in John chapter 12, verse 20 to 24. And Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls to the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. We see that further as he comes into Jerusalem, into the final week of his life here on earth. And he was talking about his hour. Now before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come, for what? To depart out of this world to the Father. Having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. The hour that he was referring to is the hour of his crucifixion, his death, his resurrection, and even his glorification, his ascension into heaven. The hour is about to come. Now the hour has come. In John chapter 17, verses 1 and 2, 
when Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to the heaven, to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your son. The son may glorify you since you have given him authority over all flesh to give eternal life to all whom you have given to me. This is the ultimate revelatory statement that Jesus had. What an amazing you know, thing that it unfolded. You know, somehow as he was walking in the final days here on earth, his first reference to this hour was to his earthly mother. My hour has not yet come. And his last reference to this hour that has come is now directed to his heavenly father. My hour has finally come. Glorify me so that I may glorify you. What an interesting statement. The hour really refers to his ultimate purpose here on earth. And what he was saying is, yeah, this miracle that I'm about to do right now, it is nothing compared to the ultimate miracle that I will be doing on that cross. Don't focus on this miracle. The ultimate hour will come and that will be the ultimate miracle. The ultimate sign is when you see me hang on that cross and I will die and on the third day I will be raised up from the dead and you'll see me all go up to heaven. That is the ultimate sign that they would be seeing. Number, verse 5, His mother said to the servants, Do whatever he tells you. Her confidence in Jesus did not wane. Her statement for, you know, do whatever he tells you is actually our statement for life and faith. Do whatever he tells you. How many of you know that you and I are called to obedience? Tell the person beside you, obey Jesus. Do whatever he tells you. You know, and that's exactly the instru- simple instruction of Mary to the servants. Do whatever he tells you. I have full confidence in my son. Jesus wants us. God wants us to have a heart of confidence. Peter in Luke chapter 5 said this, Because you said so, I will let down the nets. We listen to the word and we obey what the word tells us. And my last point is actually the sign. Everybody say the sign. Verse 6, let's move for, further. Now there were... How many stone water jars? Six. There were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding how many gallons? 20 or 30 gallons. Now, this is a big jar. In the house, you normally order the five-gallon jar for water. Right? Imagine six of those. Okay, 30 gallons times six. That's a lot. These are like big jars. And so Jesus said to her, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. Now, you have to be familiar with this because what they use this jar for is for purification rice. So you see this jars, when you enter a Jewish home, you see these jars, and if you traveled a long way, and you're, you know, they didn't have Nike shoes there or clothes shoes, they have open sandals. And the roads are not made of asphalt nor cement. It's made of like dust. And so you go into a home, you wash your feet with this water, and you use the same kind of water for purifying. You're, you're like cleaning your hands before you eat. And so this, there's like a ceremonial a purification rite that they observe as you know, a Jewish community. And so this is kind of like how it looks like. You know, it's made of stone. So you can imagine a stone that's been chiseled. And that's really an expensive kind of a jar. This is not the clay jar that you see that's made by human hands. You know, and you know, they actually rotate and so 
Something like that, okay? My darling. Something like that. So this is not the jar that you mold, you know, to be able to make, you know, that jar. But it's a stone jar. A stone jar that is really, really expensive. You know, our, our Bible teacher in, in Israel, Arye Bar David, said that this is estimated to cost this ordinary clay jar to be $70 per, you know, per jar. But a stone jar that is used for purification during the time of Jesus in Cana, it costs about $7,000 each. This is an expensive kind of a jar. John was very detailed. He wrote there, there were six stone jars. It's kind of like six Bentley cars parked in your garage for the wedding guests to see. Hey, wow. Or six Maserati, you know, cars, you know, wow, wow. And I think the the groom and maybe the father of the groom specifically used that as like to show off, you know. It's gonna, it's the wedding of my child. And so let's have this stone jar. I don't know if he bought it. Or if he rented it. I don't know. But definitely there are six stone jars there. But the problem is, you have six stone expensive jars and you have no wine? Come on. A showing off, but yet you missed out some details. And in verse 8 it says, And he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. I want to just go back to the verse earlier. Fill the jars with water. And they filled them to the brim. It indicates that nothing else can be added anymore. It's really full. And so here we see that Jesus did not use an additive to convert the, the water into wine. But it just happened there. And so they did so. They obeyed. And in verse 8, he said to them, Now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. And so what did the servants do? So they took it. So they were obeying, you know, what Jesus was telling them. And it, this inter- it's interesting that this miracle happened without any flair. It's unnoticeable. He did not speak to the water, or something like that, you know, become, become wine or, you know, become the best wine. You know, there's, there's nothing. Fill it up and then give the water to the master of ceremony. How many of you know that many miracles that we have every day seem unnoticeable? The thing about miracles is all you've got to do is to obey the Lord. When God tells you to fill it with water and when God tells you to, to draw it out, all you've got to do is sometimes, Lord, this is crazy. You know, why will I draw this out and fool myself and actually become a fool also by giving this to the master of ceremony. And I know where this came from. This is just water for washing the feet with kitty-kitty and all over, you know. And now I'm going to serve this as the wine for the wedding. What happened there was not just a better kind of water. There was not just purified or alkaline water. There was a change in the state and the characteristic. It became wine. You know, that's how God is to us. When God changes us, you don't just become better. You become a new you. The old is gone. The new has come. 
When we encounter Christ, we will not just become better. We will ultimately be changed. Amen. Can we just give the Lord praise this morning? And I'm about to end. The most amazing wine happened. And the master said this, Everyone serves the good wine first, and the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine, but you have kept the good wine. He was asking, where did this come from? And the servants was probably saying, secret. <laughs> because they knew for a fact where it came from. It came from the banga. It came from an orokan. About to, you know, for, for washing of the feet, and now it's the best wine. I like what the NIV said. Everyone brings out the choice wine first and the cheaper wine after that. The guests, when the guests have had too much to drink, but you have saved the best till now. You know how it is when you eat? The first taste of food is really good, but when you're really, really full, even the best food, it tastes regular. tastes bland. But not with Jesus. With Jesus, I believe our life as, Christian, as a Christian is really, it becomes better and better and better and better. In Proverbs chapter 4, verse 18, the Bible says, The path of the righteous is like the first gleam of dawn. It shines brighter till the full noonday sun. And I believe God really wants us to enjoy our walk with Him. The moment He changes us, we will have a better life. This is the first of His signs Jesus did at Canaan Galilee and manifested His glory. And His disciples, what? believed in him. The NIV said this, this, the first of his miraculous signs, Jesus performed at Canaan Galilee. He thus revealed his glory and his disciples put their faith in him. He manifested who he was. Basically, it was a very simple sign, a very simple miracle. There's no flare. It's unnoticeable. But yet, he showed them a glimpse of who he was. He showed them it's kind of like, you know, Superman, you know, just opening a little bit his shirt, showing a little bit of that S mark. I am your God. He revealed himself. He manifested himself. And the disciples started to put their faith in him. In fact, another translation says this. Literally in the Greek, it says, and they surrendered their life to him. And I believe that as God reveals himself to us on a daily basis, we need to surrender our lives fresh every single day that He is the one who deserves our adoration and our worship as He converts our life from the thing that is old to the thing that is new. Can we just bow our heads right now as we come to a close? Father, we thank You so much for our time this morning. Thank You that You are a miracle-working God. Thank You that Jesus Ultimately, He showed us a glimpse of who He, who he is. That he is a God who is not just altering something and makes things that are better. But Lord, He changes the nature of things. And he, Lord, He changes us from the inside out. If you are here this morning and if you have not given your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, maybe you are kind of like that water, impure, without a purpose. And you want to be purified by the work of God. Only God can change a human heart. And if that is you, and if you want to give your life to the Lord Jesus Christ, the Bible says when He manifested His glory, they put their faith in Him. I believe you have seen the glory of God, little glimpse of it in your life. 
And He's giving you a chance to give your life to Him. And if, you, if that is you, can you kindly lift up your hand right now? If you want to receive Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, this is a very specific call to some of you who may have not yet received Jesus Christ as your Savior and Lord. I want to pray for you right now. Anyone at all? If you want to surrender your life to Him by saying, Jesus, forgive me my sins. I'm asking that you forgive me and give me a new chance to life. Give me eternal life. Give me a new purpose for living. I want to receive your forgiveness right now. Anyone at all? Thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord. Let's all stand up right now. Thank you, Lord. Let's all lift up our hands before the Lord. Maybe some of us are here and we have had a run out of wine situation. Father, we just present to you who we are. We go through different situations in our life and we run out of ideas. We run out of answers. We run out of provision. We run out of uh, patience. We run out of love. We run out of forgiveness. But Lord, you're a God who never runs out. You're the one who always is fresh and you're, there's something that we can draw out from your spirit every single day, God. And Lord, we just cry out to you, Lord God, for a fresh infilling of the Holy Spirit even right now, a fresh wine that you would pour out upon your people even this morning, God. Pour out in new grace. Pour out in new faith. Pour out new love. Pour out new forgiveness. Pour out a new purpose, a new vision, Lord God, upon your people. Pour out a new understanding of who you are, a new revelation, God. Pour out, Lord God, a fresh wine upon your people. Can we just lift up our hands for the last time? Father, we thank you so much. And even as the disciples have surrendered their lives to you fresh, continuously, progressively. I think, Lord God, we will do that every single day, God. That we will learn to put our faith in you. That we will learn to believe in you. That, Lord, as we see the miracles and the signs that you do uh, do in our lives, Lord God, every single day, I thank you, God, we will respond by putting our utmost trust and faith in you, the one and true and living God. Father, we thank you that you will bless everyone, Lord God, here in this place. And Lord, may we be a people who would be sharers and bearers of the good news of Jesus Christ. That we will not just stop with the signs, just, you know, uh, just keeping it to ourselves. But Lord, let us share the good news that what Jesus Christ has done in our life, Lord God, help us to use the miracles that you have for us, Lord God, as a bridge to others who are needing good news. Lord God, and I thank you that you will give us the boldness and the confidence, God, to be able to share your love and your good work to other people, Father God. Lord, bless your people as we leave this place. The Lord, bless you and keep you. The Lord, make His face shine upon you and be gracious to you. And the Lord, turn His face toward you and grant you peace. Father, we thank you that your righteousness, your peace, and your joy will be with us every single day of our lives. We glorify you, Lord God, with the way we live. We thank you for the new wine and the new faith that you are pouring upon your people. We want to glorify you. We want to give you thanks. In Jesus' name we pray. Everybody say, Amen.